Money FM 89.3. Best of drive time. Drive time with Elliot, Timothy, and Chen Chen. Only on Money FM 89.3. Money FM 89.3. Good afternoon. It is drive time with Elliot Danker, Timothy Go, and Chua Tian Tian. Time now for our Euro Watch segment. We're going to take a look at some headlines from out of Europe. Uh, top of the agenda, Britain poised to sign an Indo-Pacific trade deal, joining forces with 11 other CPTPP countries with access to a $10 trillion market. What's on the cards for post-Brexit Britain? It's trying to pivot away from uh, the European Union in that sense. Uh, in fact, on that note, we've also got King Charles said to make his first foreign trip as a British monarch. Will he be able to thaw relations between the UK and EU, which of course have been strained by Britain's decision to leave the bloc? Let's find out more from Dr. Samir Puri, who is visiting lecturer in war studies at King's College London. He's also the author of Russia's Road to War with Ukraine. Dr. Samir, good afternoon. How are you doing? Uh, very well, thanks. Nice to speak to you again, Elliot. Yes, always enjoy our conversations. And we get to start with King Charles, his first foreign trip as British monarch. He's making his debut on the world stage in that sense. So what's everyone going to be looking out for? I mean, obviously, uh, you can't help but compare that so-called star power and aura uh, to Queen Elizabeth II or the late Queen Elizabeth II. Yeah, that's right. And, and Queen Elizabeth II had been in power since 1952, so... There aren't really that many people alive who remember a, a, a British monarch other than her. Mm. So that's one thing to say. But certainly with King Charles, uh, I saw the footage of him addressing German dignitaries, speaking German. He was speaking German. Mm-hmm. Angela Merkel and others were sitting in the audience, so the greater the good in Germany. That sort of thing is going to go down very well. But we should also remind ourselves that King Charles, formerly Prince Charles, is a celebrity in and of himself. And he has, he's probably one of the most recognizable people in the world, if not maybe to the same stature as the Queen. So there'll be a lot of goodwill. And I think he's, he's hit this job at the right age for him. Mm. He's coming across better than I ever remember him coming across, honestly. He was a bit of a figure of fun, a bit of a comedy figure sometimes back in the 90s, certainly amongst Brits. But he comes across, I think, as actually quite stately, which if you're British, that's a good thing, given Mm. how much tumult we've had in our politics. Mm. I mean, we often forget that he's actually quite a witty guy from way back when. Um, Although, yes, uh, there's been a lot to talk about where Britain's concerned. So this trip being billed as an important European gesture to maintain strong ties after Brexit. Um, But as far as the French leg, which was cancelled, do you think that's going to make a bad impression? What about the impact? I mean, you mentioned he he spoke in German. Uh, Are we seeing this as a positive impact where Germany is concerned? Definitely with Germany, because of course the British royal family and the relationship with Germany, everyone's always going to think about those two world wars. Yeah. So there's there's an ongoing, never-ending process of, of, you know, the British elites presenting themselves as aware and I'd say Britain was very praiseworthy King Charles was very praiseworthy of Germany's housing of Ukrainian refugees. Mm. But when it comes to France, this isn't really King Charles's fault. This is because there is a, a protest, yeah. a, a big nationwide protest over uh, President Macron's attempts mm-hmm. to raise the French pension age from sixty two to sixty four. So I don't think it was to think badly of King Charles. I mean why would you go visit Macron when Macron is literally having uh, you know, he's under siege uh, by his own populace. Yeah, I guess that question should have been, uh, um, is French President Emmanuel Macron's uh, relationship with his people uh, strained? And we all know the answer to that one, Dr. Samir. Oh, yeah. oh yeah. gosh, a tough one, all because of retirement. Um, But um, 
with regard to you know back to to the British monarch, the soft power of the monarchy, will it be able to reset relationships between the UK and EU? The issue of Brexit is still ongoing, unfortunately, um, and and it's definitely left a bit of a strain. Can this ever recover, in your opinion? Yeah, it's a very good question. So it's not only going to be King Charles, it's also the politics, which in a very summarized way, the UK government came up with the Windsor Agreement, which is a slight renegotiation of how Northern Ireland and other bits and pieces are dealt with after Brexit. So you notice they picked, it's a political agreement, but they picked the name Windsor Agreement. Windsor is a residence for the royal family. So having King Charles follow up after that Windsor Agreement almost providing that royal stamp of approval to turning a new page with the relations between London and the EU countries. That is actually quite an important symbolic step as well, I think. It's a very positive thing, because they they do have to get along. They are neighbours, albeit separated by the English Channel. Mm. One thing the government is trying to do post-Brexit is to sort out their trade ties. Uh, We are expecting uh, the UK to be announced as the 12th member of the Indo-Pacific Trade Bloc sometime this week. I I don't know. What what can we expect from this, Dr. Samir? Oh, this is a huge, huge development. This is the CPTPP. Yeah. And it is the first European country to be made a a signatory. And that ratification was only, you know, 29th March. It's brand new. And and it's an amazing opportunity for the UK to be able to tap into some of the uh, really profitable trading potential in this part of the world, which I think if you're Singaporean, you might take for granted because, you know, Vietnam, Japan, they're all close by. Canada is a member as well. So there is a bit of a precedent for the Commonwealth and, of course, Australia. But it's a huge victory for the United Kingdom and its post-Brexit life. Mm. So this does something for where where customs relations are concerned. Pivoting business to Asia, this might be, I I might be stretching a little bit here, Dr. Samir, but when we look at this and that pivot, right, what does this mean? Does it mean, you know, still being headquartered in the UK or giving the UK access to headquartering here in Asia where there are a lot of emerging economies? I think it's going to be a bit of both. And I'm sure the UK is approaching this from while the sky is the limit in terms of what can be achieved. And and they'll also, I mean, British brands and British expertise, they are very well respected Mm. around the world. Even the politics sometimes becomes a bit of a a, a trouble spot. You know, UK higher education, UK research and development firms like Dyson, they are are going to find uh, willing partners and customers uh, in these uh, rapidly expanding East Asian, Southeast Asian markets. We know what the population growth is like in some of the countries uh, in this region, and that is that is really lucrative to the UK. Mm. Okay, um, and finally, on this particular topic, we've got the issue of China. They are lined up next to join the CPTPP. What will they be thinking? <laughs> oh well, you know, compared to China's possible accession, the UK's accession was a piece of cake, as they say. Yeah. Uh, I mean, because also, don't forget Taiwan, Taipei have also made noises about wanting to join the CPTPP as well. Mm. So all of a sudden, you've got that that dispute has imposed itself on the CPTPP. And that's going to be, I think, a really difficult one. So I, I couldn't tell you how that's going to play out. But I think ultimately it's going to be some fear that because the Chinese market is so huge, obviously, yeah. uh, that there'll be quite, I think, permanently changing implications of the CPTPP uh, if mainland China is to join. But, you know, it may well happen. Uh, we'll have to wait and see.
Okay. Uh, I want to move on to talk about the Scottish National Party's leadership election. Uh, Hamza Yusuf replacing Nicholas Sturgeon. Um, what does the future hold for the party? I mean, this is a historic moment because uh, the country now has a Hindu prime minister uh, in Rishi Sunak and then now a Muslim first minister in Scotland in the form of uh, Hamza Yusuf. Your thoughts? Yeah. Oh, I should also add Leo Varadkar, who is half Indian, ah. has also uh, got a position of authority in Dublin, in the Republic of Ireland. So uh, we can add that to the mix as well. So mm. people of Indian heritage, South Asian heritage, are, you know, they have prominence in the UK and Ireland like never before. What can we expect? Well, Hamza Yusuf is, you know, he's not a, you know, I'm not Scottish. I had not heard of him before this last week. We don't tend to pay attention to this, the minutiae of SNP politics. Right. A couple of things to bear in mind. He's quite young. He's 37, I believe. His family is uh, Pakistani um, uh, via East Africa as well and, uh, you know, well-established in Scotland. But I think, by the by, what can we expect? The most important things are how credibly he can push for a second independence referendum Mm. for Scotland. Mm. That was uh, Nicola Sturgeon, his predecessor's uh, mission. That's what he says he can also achieve. But I think the odds are somewhat stacked against him from getting that through. But let's wait and see. Uh, there's one observation on, uh, on Scotland very quickly is yeah. ultimately that their relations with Brussels and the EU are also very important uh, because if Scotland was ever to be hypothetically independent, its membership of the EU would become its most important international partnership. So this whole Windsor agreement we're talking about with the UK and Brexit, mm. that also has a bit of bearing on this as well. So unbelievably with the UK, there are so many moving parts it is so complex. You have to take into account so many different relationships. Yeah. Uh, Scotland is yet another one that I think is, is going to be have to be factored in in, in the years to come around uh, the attitudes of the Scottish people and humble use of its own ability to get that second referendum for independence. Yeah, yeah. That's been a hot topic for, what, since 2016 or so? But, you know, on that note of, of, of leadership uh, in that part of the world, you can't help but think this was going to happen sooner or later. I mean, if you've been to London, the national dish there is curry. <laughs> and amazing stuff. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. And I think, yeah, the UK, like any country, goes through phases and it yeah. modernizes. And, you know, the UK of today is not the UK of the 1970s. It's, it's a very, very different time, I think. Yeah. yeah, very true. Okay, Dr. Samia, finally, I want to talk a little bit about the uh, Russia-Ukraine situation. The International Atomic Energy Agency chief, Rafael Grossi, says the UN atomic watchdog is trying to deal on the Russia-held nuclear plant in Ukraine. Um, do you have any clue on what these plants could potentially involve or evolve to? Well, I mean, the nuclear concerns in Ukraine are pretty, pretty serious around the power stations. I mean, I don't know specifically what those, what those discussions or plans relate to, but I think you know, there is a, a huge concern around the Zaporizhia nuclear power plants. Okay. Uh, and there's also a, a real need for international uh, inspectors around the stability, as in the, the literal stability of, of Ukraine's uh, uh, nuclear power plants, including Zaporizhia, which is now occupied by Russian troops. Mm, mm. Right. So the most realistic is just basically more more inspections. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, inspections and access. Because it's a war zone. uh, I think being able to get physical access to the experts is is clearly very precarious. It's quite a dangerous job if you're going into a war zone to inspect a nuclear power station. So I think um, what can be achieved around that, I I don't know how much can be achieved, but ultimately uh, there are stories of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plants, Ukrainian staff, being forced to keep working under under Russian gunpoint, basically. Oh. I don't know how true that is, but it, of course, the, the plant is 
is you know, held by the Russian armed forces. Mm. That's not a good far as the security of that nuclear station is concerned. Mm. So it's very understandable there would be concern around mm. uh, a protection zone in that yeah. sort of thing. And we need to find out, is, uh, as you said, to, to get access. I've been speaking with Dr. Samia Puri, who's visiting lecturer in war studies at King's College London. He's also the author of Russia's Road to War with Ukraine. Dr. Samia, appreciate your time. Take care and have a great Thursday evening. Yeah, you too. Thanks very much. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.